Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. With snow on the ground, it finally feels like winter, and if you're not dreaming already, it's time to start thinking about a white Christmas. Welcome into this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship and the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service have confirmed a positive case of highly pathogenic avian influenza in Ida County. This affected site is a commercial turkey flock. Commercial and backyard flock owners should prevent contact between their birds and wild birds. Sick birds or unusual deaths among birds should be immediately reported to state or federal officials. Biosecurity resources and best practices are available at iowaagriculture.gov forward slash biosecurity. If producers suspect signs of HPAI in their flocks, they should contact their veterinarian immediately. And possible cases must also be reported to the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship at 515-281-5305. In other news, Iowa farmland prices have jumped again. Iowa State University's annual land value survey shows farmland values are averaging $11,411 an acre in 2022, a 17% rise from last year. ISU says farmers have a lot more cash on hand and supply chain issues led to a shortage of equipment, so the money typically spent on equipment is now getting used to buy land. The survey included responses from land appraisers, farm managers, and lenders. 70% of the people surveyed said land values were too high or way too high, However, 48% of the participants also expect prices to be higher a year from now. About 28% expect lower land values next year, and 24% expect prices to hold steady. The survey began in 1941, and the 2022 farmland value of $11,411 per acre is the highest in history. When adjusted for inflation, this year's value comes in at $8,716 an acre. And that's all the time we have for news headlines this week. Check out the rest of our daily news stories on iowaagnet.com. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker with his faith-based food for thought right here on Weekend Ag Matters. Earlier this past week, I spent a late afternoon splitting wood. It's an activity I really enjoy. I get some good exercise, feel like I'm being productive, helps cut down on the heating bill, and I really enjoy sitting next to a wood stove soaking in that radiant heat on a cold winter night. If one thinks about it, wood burning in a wood stove represents being heated up at least three times. Part of the reason for splitting the wood was to get it under cover before it rained on Tuesday evening of this week. It was dark by the time I finished, so I pulled the wood splitter home and then made a second trip back to get the wood wagon. Well, on the second trip, the air changed and I could smell rain. And because I was sweating, once I got into the tractor cab, the windows immediately fogged over. It was an eerie feeling driving back. But in the dark, my path lit by the tractor headlights and trying to keep the windshield from fogging over, I did for a moment lose my bearings, and I had to stop to find the house lights to confirm I was going in the right direction. For just that moment, not being sure I was on course put me in an odd frame of mind. Coincidentally, a friend of mine sent me a text with a link to a story that he wanted to share with me about Billy Graham. 
For some of you, this might be familiar, but it will connect the dots, so bear with me for just a moment. Mr. Graham, at age 91, was at an event honoring him, and he said, See the suit I'm wearing? It's brand new. My children and my grandchildren are telling me that I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be a lot more fastidious, so I went out and I bought a new suit for the occasion, and one more occasion. You know what that second occasion is? This is a suit I'll be buried in. But when I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, but I also know where I'm going. So even when we're lost in the night, or our focus becomes misguided, what good news it is to know where we are going. And Mr. Graham finished with this observation. Life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Russ. That's it for segment one of this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Dustin has his monthly chat with Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag. This is Weekend Ag Matters. Every detail matters when building a winning game plan. That's why the Cyclones and Hawkeyes rely on better, cleaner-now biodiesel to power their team buses on game days, delivering success on the field, in the field, and in the environment. Make biodiesel part of your game plan by visiting IASoybeans.com. Biodiesel. Request it. Grow it. Use it. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soybean Checkoff. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Well, welcome to our second segment of Weekend Ag Matters here on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Huffman. It's time we sit down for our monthly chat with Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag, especially on the heels of more discoveries of HPAI, or the bird flu. We also talk about his work on the hypoxia task force and more here on this month's chat. Well, it's time once again for our monthly chat with Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag and Secretary December. Another year gone by already. It's, it's just flown through, hasn't it, for 2022? Oh my goodness, it really has. Of course, this is a, a really it's that time of year where you're doing that look back, you're trying to look ahead at the year. Of course, there's always optimism when you're looking at the new year, but my goodness, we've been through a few things in the last 12 months from an from an ag perspective. Uh, you know, Ukraine uh, was not on the radar last year at this time. Supply chain disruptions all throughout the year. Uh, high path avian influenza, unfortunately. Now we've We've now surpassed 2015. It's now the largest foreign animal disease outbreak in U.S. history. And then uh, how many times did we say supply chain disruption uh, in 2022? So those are certainly some of the things that are on my mind as we're wrapping up the year. Yeah, and let's, let's start with the HPAI. You know, as much as the drought was devastating, I think this was still the big story of the year. Now, yeah. you, as we said, the U.S., has surpassed 2015. How about here in Iowa? I mean, I've seen the, the we've, we've seen the reports from IDALs there with the, the, the finding more cases here in the last couple of days and weeks. I mean, what are we at here in the state as compared to 2015? Yeah, we're, we're at, uh, we're at 24, uh, we're at 30, we're at 30 now in the state of Iowa, 24 commercial sites. And that's still, 
That's still look from an from an Iowa perspective. Remember, in fifteen, we had seventy seven sites. We had thirty million birds that were impacted. Uh, even as bad as this year has been, and it is stressful, and we are seeing a reoccurrence here in the fall. It is nothing like twenty fifteen. Uh, that's a testament to our producers and the biosecurity and the things that they have learned. It's also, I think, a, a reaction to or a response to uh, the fact that we're doing a better job as the state of Iowa and as USDA in defining, uh, uh, containing, and, and really disposing of the virus. So those are that's actually a good news story in this. Hard to hard to be thinking about the good news side of this when you're still in the in, in the middle of it, frankly. But you know, we had taken about a six month break between you know the last. A positive case in the spring was in May. It was six months later when we started to see the fall reoccurrence. And that was different than 2015, you know, but we've been watching that throughout the northern United States all summer that they continued to have cases. These birds are still, these wild birds are still carrying that virus. And as they turned around and headed south during the migration, they're once again carrying that virus with them. And, it, it, you know, it's going to end at some point. They're going to move through but it does have me concerned once again about what happens in the spring. They do not seem to be able to shed this virus. They're continuing to spread it. It's unfortunate. Yeah, and I know, I know talking to some producers, they're looking forward to winter. Hopefully, you know, winter seems to freeze out if we have a normal winter, some of these viruses. But again, if they're bringing it right back from a warm climate, you know, we, we're going to have to be on our toes again come the spring. And is this something that we, you know, think or are afraid that might just be a yearly thing? Or is it just something that once we shake this, we hopefully will be good again for a little while? You know, that's, that is very much on our minds, right, in, in producers' minds is, you know, you used to think that, well, okay, we can accept that high path maybe happens in the spring of the year. By the time we get to summer, we're done with it. That certainly played out in 2015. The temperatures warmed up. This is different. They're carrying it back. Um, I, I think over time, those wild birds will shed this virus ultimately. But it, it, it has had the effect of now we have to acknowledge that there's a threat year round and that you really can never take your foot off the pedal when it comes to biosecurity. We have to, you know, we have to figure out how to respond in cold, freezing temperatures where we historically had not thought about those things. We always assumed that we'd be dealing with spring and summer conditions. And, and those are complications in terms of a response. And, you know, that's just the reality now is folks have had to accept that we're going to have to be vigilant all the time. I, I certainly hope that this is not a an annual event. Uh, we, we, we really, that's devastating uh, from a financial standpoint and, and certainly consumers ultimately pay for that as well. But it is incredibly stressful for the producers, both, both folks that have positive cases, but also imagine every poultry producer is getting up every morning, going out and doing chore and wondering if today's the day that they'll be dealing with it. That's incredibly hard on our families. Moving away from bird flu, obviously uh, you're one of our representatives with the hypoxia task force. In fact, you're a state co-chair. You just had a meeting yesterday in Washington. Tell us about, first of all, maybe people that aren't familiar with what the hypoxia task force is and things you discussed yesterday. Right. The task force is made up of the 12 states that are along the main stem of the Mississippi River. And uh, then the, and that's the one, one half of the task force. And I'm the co-chair on behalf of the states. And then the other half of the task force is really the federal agencies, the federal family. And the co-chair is Radhika Fox, who's the assistant administrator of the Office of Water at, at EPA. But USDA, Interior Department, uh, uh, the Corps of Engineers, you know, a whole host of, of other folks are, are also at that table. And it's a really good opportunity to get together. States are doing, 
you know, Iowa has a, a nutrient reduction strategy that we finalized in 2013, and we've spent nearly 10 years now implementing that. Each state in the Mississippi River Basin, in, as part of the task force, has their own uh, nutrient reduction strategy. And part of what I'm advocating for on behalf of the states is that states need to lead. States are taking action. We all have unique landscapes, unique economic situations, unique partnerships that can be developed. And so part of what we're constantly talking about is how states must lead, states are best uh, situated to lead, and that really what we need is federal support in doing that. And so the, the task force meeting the last couple of days was really an opportunity for states to report out. We had not been together for a couple of years, and so it was, a, it was good to reconnect with folks, but also we just went through and, and federal agencies gave updates, and then each state highlighted some of the progress that they're making. I was really encouraged. Uh, each state's doing different things, and they're in different uh, phases of their strategy, but they're all doing things, and I was really impressed with the amount of work that's just actually getting done. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually be doing work, and there's a lot to be proud of there. So maybe explain what the task force's goal is and, and with those states and the work they're doing in partnership with the federal government. Really, it's all, it's all about, you know, it, you, you got to do conservation work locally, but it all connects downstream, and ultimately what we're trying to do is re, reduce the size of the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And so that's that area where the fresh water coming out of the river meets the salt water in the Gulf, and it creates... A stratification there where it, it uh, uh, depletes the oxygen and, and uh, marine life uh, struggles there. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge. And, and that size of that zone varies from year to year. It depends on the weather in the Gulf. It depends on how much rain falls throughout the basin. And, uh, and then, of course, what we're working to do upstream. And again, whether you're a, talking about farm fields or you're talking about cities and and uh, the, the stormwater that runs off of our pavement or whether you're talking about wastewater treatment facilities or industries, what are the things that we can do to reduce our nutrient loss? How many how much uh, nutrients are ending up in that river that ultimately go to the Gulf of Mexico? But, you know, you can, and we, so we think about that and we can talk about the size of the hypoxic zone and that's one way to measure it. It's very much var variable year to year depending on the weather conditions. What we think is most important is Talk about and measure the work that's getting done in the states. That will translate into the benefits that we're looking for. Okay. Um, and then, obviously, another thing we want to talk about, too, USDA is putting out their ag census again. Right. Um, some people like to consider that junk mail, don't want to tell the government what they're doing. Uh, but uh, not that I ever heard that in my household <laughs> growing up. But, I mean, how important is this for Iowa farmers that get this to, to be filling it out and sending it back? You know, it's, it's so important. Look, uh, agriculture is a data-hungry enterprise, right? We always want information. It's your, it's your business, uh, Dustin, right? It's, it's what you do. You talk about the markets, talk about trends, analysis. We're a data-hungry industry. And, you know, for, it's, it's important for us to understand, you know, through the census what's happening Who's on the land? What does that look like? What do these operations look like? And, and that is critically important uh, information. Every five years, the census is done. So I really would encourage folks. And there's a couple ways to do it. You can, you, know, you can pick up the phone and take the census by phone. You can do it online. I think there's been some emails that have gone out. Of course, what's happening right now is now those paper, uh, those paper envelopes or those paper surveys are coming out. And I really would encourage folks, please take some time to do this. It's it's important. It informs farm policy. 
we've got a farm bill discussion that's coming up in 2023. You know, if if we don't know some of this key information, then you know, how can we have really informed policy getting made? And so those are critically important pieces. And I would just really encourage folks to uh, to take part in the census this year. Risk. All right. Well, Secretary, thank you for your time and another year of our monthly chats and look forward to keeping it going here in 2023. Absolutely. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and uh, and a, a very happy new year. We'll look forward to talking to you in January. That's it for segment two of Weekend Ag Matters. We're going to take a short break and then Mark Magnuson is going between the pods to wrap up the show. Stay right here. We'll be right back. December is a month that is best enjoyed by sharing time with loved ones and friends while celebrating the holiday season. It is also a time for farmers and producers to review what they have accomplished over the past year and take time to enjoy the holidays. With a long year of challenges to overcome while growing crops and raising livestock, December allows farmers and producers to reflect on what they have learned over the past 12 months and make plans for the future of their farming operations. From all of us at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, have a happy holidays. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Mark Magnuson with the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. We are here for Between the Pods. It is the bi-weekly show where we talk about a different aspect of Iowa soybeans. The Iowa Soybean Association is where we are located today, and I'm here with Ben Porep. He is a conservation agronomist. Ben, could you tell us how your job works alongside the ISA, with the ISA, what your day-to-day responsibilities are? Yeah, so as a conservation agronomist, I'm basically tasked with providing technical assistance and being a go-to conservation resource for farmers across Iowa. There's a team of five of us, four of which are positioned uniquely throughout the state with ag retail locations, so leveraging the relationship that sales agronomists and those retailers have with farmers to help promote the implementation of conservation across the state. Um, I'm kind of a conservation conservation catch-all here out of the Ankeny office, Um, so I work with ag retailers, industry professionals, farmers one-on-one. Um, hooking them up with cost share programs, providing funding opportunities, um, and then, like I said, being that technical resource for when the implementation of the practice happens to help make sure that the farmer is successful. So, Ben, on a day-to-day, would you say that you're reaching out to farmers more, or are they reaching out to you? Are they coming to you with questions and ideas? Yeah, um, the network, as I mentioned, is fairly new, and when I started, um, it was more me reaching out to farmers, and as the network is really kind of grown and started to gain some traction. We've had a lot of good good contact with farmers reaching out to us and saying, hey, you know, we heard about your network. Um, what can you do for me and how can we make this successful? Ben, when farmers want to get started, maybe they've, you know, I think all farmers do some conservation practices, some sustainability practices when it comes to their operation. But if they're looking to improve those, what are kind of some of the first areas that you look at then? What are some some of the ways that you're thinking, hey, this is where we can make a change right away? Yeah, um, the biggest thing is kind of identifying what the farmer wants to get out of their conservation practice. So as you mentioned, a lot of them are already implementing some form of conservation on their farm, but they may not really have a defined reason as to why. So identifying a resource concern, whether it's water quality, are you trying to keep soil in your field? You know, what is your main goal? That's kind of where I like to start where, where, you know, how can we take this sustainability aspect of my operation to the next level? Well, let's identify what we want to do first. 
and then kind of go from there and see what fits best. So what kind of tools do you have, Ben? Do you have some photos to say, hey, this this is what happens if you don't use cover crops, you're going to have soil runoff, that type of thing? Is it something that's kind of a way to learn as well? Yeah, you know, we have all the pictures and we have some of the data from the awesome research we do here, but a lot of it, you know, it's seen on the farmstead. A guy will be like, hey, we just had a windstorm and my soil's blowing all over and my neighbor with cover crops doesn't, or hey, we just had a big rain and my neighbor's in two days earlier. So yeah, the pictures and kind of the tools we have, um, we use quite a bit, but also the farmers are really starting to see the impacts themselves and reaching out with those kind of questions. What's some of the initial responses you get from farmers that you work with? Do they say, hey, this is kind of neat. This is something that has really kind of made me feel good about the way that I'm doing things on my farm. Yeah, lots of good response. Um, a lot of them really care about the environment and kind of those resource concerns we talked about and maybe just didn't feel comfortable enough, like they did, maybe didn't know enough or weren't confident enough that they can make it work in their operation. So having that resource to say, you know, we can make this work and this is how it's gonna be sustainable on your farm, it's given them a lot of confidence and they're really excited about it. And Ben, I think farmers definitely get a bad rap from outside perspectives where people think that they maybe only care about the bottom line or, you know, they're just worried about this current crop, but in farmers that we visit with, at least I'll speak personally. I don't find that to be the case at all. I see farmers thinking about the future because they want to continue to farm. Is that the same kind of responses, the same kind of aspect that you see from these practices helping them? Yeah, it's definitely, um, for most of the guys I talk to, it's about protecting their land. Um, you know, we still try to find ways to make these practices profitable. Profitability is a big thing for all farming operations. Um, but that stewardship of the land, keeping it ready for the next generation. You know, we're seeing a lot of young farmers come in and making land investments saying, you know, I want to build this soil so it's successful in the future for when I hand it off to my son or daughter that's coming back. And yeah, certainly they're, they're really into to the stewardship of the land more so than just the bottom line. Ben, is there anything that you're working towards or something that you would like to, uh, I guess, include into this? Is there something that you have as a goal for trying to make sure that farmers have all the tools available? Yeah, just making us or making farmers aware that our networks out there is huge. Um, like I said, it's a confidence deal. The last thing we want to do is have somebody have a bad experience implementing a conservation practice and then they never want to do it again. So just getting the word out there that you have the resources and the opportunities. There's never been more funding and opportunities and, and resources than there are now in the conservation field. So just kind of spreading the word that you know we're here for you and it's not just a bottom line deal. We want to make this sustainable because we, we understand you have land stewardship goals. And monetarily, are there a lot of ways to help out farmers to kind of cut the cost if they want to make some of these changes? Yes, more than ever. So whether it's state, federal, private, there's a ton of cost share out there right now. Um, one thing we really do um, that I found helpful is sit down with the farmer and calculate true ROI. So, you know, we're all shooting for high yields and research is like, how can we get the most yield out of our ground? Um, really sitting down and kind of taking an approach of, these conservation practices can lower input costs. And yes, your yield might have that huge 20, 30 bushel increase, but a three or four bushel increase. So kind of that lower input, maybe the steady to a little bit lower yield gain is still more profitable than dumping all these high inputs in, especially with where input costs are right now to attain that 10, 15 bushel yield increase. 
I think all farmers right now are open to efficiency and efficacy when it comes to their operation. So I think you're right on there. Uh, ben, so uh, the obvious question, how can farmers get involved then? If they want some help, they have a question, they want to come to you directly, how can they do so? Yeah, um, the network tries to get around to as many field days and events like that as we can. Um, we're always looking for people to reach out to us. Our contact information can be found on the Iowa Soybean Association website. Um, there's an About tab. Click on our team and you'll see the whole network there. Phones, emails, just certainly feel free to reach out to us. We want to work with you guys. Everybody everybody can reach out to us if you have questions. and. And we're excited that the network is growing and gaining some traction. Just the goal is getting conservation on as many acres in Iowa as we can. I got asked yesterday by a farmer actually, you know, what's your purpose? What's your end goal of being a conservation agronomist? And that is just that Iowa's farmers can continue to have confidence in the sustainability and the practices that they're implementing on their farms and, and preparing for the future, um, whatever that may be. Again, if it's a generational pass down, whatever, we just want to. Have fun, make farmers be confident in, in what they're doing and, and make it successful so we can reach our nutrient goals or soil erosion goals or whatever whatever they're set out to do. He is Ben Porep. He is a conservation agronomist, and he joins us here today on Between the Pots. Ben, thank you so much for the time. Fun to learn about, and uh, have a great rest of your week. Yeah, thanks for having me. You do the same. That was Ben Porep, a conservation agronomist with the Iowa Soybean Association. And that brings us to the end of today's show. You can find all of our daily content on iowaagnet.com. You can also follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn. And you can visit us on our YouTube channel as well. And while you're there, please subscribe. Also, click on the notification bell. That will let you know whenever we upload a new episode of Ag Matters PM or any other video content to our YouTube channel. Also, we have our free twice-daily market podcast that you can listen to at Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, and Podbean. For Dustin Huffman and Riley Smith, along with Russ Parker, I'm Mark Magnuson. This is Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network.